from James Epistle chapter 1, beginning of verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. The J.B. Phillips translation has it like this. When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders. Welcome them as friends. Mm. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position, and let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with a scorching wind, and withers the grass, and the flower falls off, and the beauty of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man in the midst of his pursuits will fade away. Blessed is the man who perseveres under trial. For once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Anybody who knows me at all knows that I love to laugh at life and, and the experiences of life, especially yours. That's why I like to read Irma Bombeck. How many of you like to read her column? It's hilarious. She writes, Mornings are bad for me. During the night, everything is wrinkled. My skin, the clothes to be worn that day, the lunch meat, and the dog. The dog's got bad kidneys and he's anxious to get out. The shoes that were left in the middle of the living room have moved on. The bread is frozen. And while the kids shower, the mirrors fog, off, fog up and my husband's beard goes limp. He's a bleeder. I waste 20 minutes trying to make 35 cents out of two quarters and five pennies. My son mistakenly grabs the garbage which he forgot to take out the night before and yells as he leaves out the door, I'll eat it on the bus, Mom. My husband removes ice from the car with a pancake turner and scratches the windshield. He yells, have a good day. I yell back, you have it. I had it yesterday. What woman wouldn't agree that she had her finest hour last week when her son dropped her off at the beauty shop with these instructions? Call me when they're finished with the estimates. <laughs> I think we could all echo her feelings about dieting. She said, I've dieted continuously for the past two decades and lost a total of 758 pounds. By all calculations, I should be hanging from a charm bracelet. I, I walked by the hall mirror the other day, sucked in my stomach and nothing moved. I know the feeling. I love to laugh at life. If 
fact is, sometimes life isn't funny. The truth is that life is difficult. And I don't suppose there's anybody here who would challenge that statement. For in varying degrees, we've all experienced how difficult life is, how to, how, having to fight and to struggle and to battle. And sometimes the battles seem unending. And one of the things that makes life so difficult is, is that in encountering trials or problems and trying to solve them or overcome them, it's so painful. And depending on the nature of those trials, they evoke in each of us feelings of frustration or loneliness or sadness or guilt or fear or even despair. How do you handle these terrible feelings of frustration and despair and loneliness? The pain sometimes of life is more severe than physical pain. Sometimes it's more severe than the most intense physical pain. Inner impulses, which we call temptation, or outer trouble, which we call trial, makes life non-funny. And people have developed a, a, a coping mechanisms or coping mechanisms for dealing with trials. Some deny them. I don't hurt. I'm not sad. I'm not lonely. I'm a rock. I'm an island. And rocks feel no pain and islands never cry. And some people defy them. And they say by their actions, I dare anybody to ever see my head bowed. It may be bloody, but it'll be unbowed. And I think of Thomas Dillon's words as he talked about getting old. Don't go gracefully into the night. Rage, rage against the light. And so it seems kind of strange when a man writes, when all kinds of trials come into your life, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. Sounds like preacher taught, doesn't it? How is it possible to deal with the pain of an unfunny life like that? Well, it kind of helps when you understand that, that pain produces and that there is a kind of process that is going on here. In fact, the psalmist says in Psalm 119, everything is your servant. And in, a, in the process of God making us to become something, this, this as a part of it, pain produces. It's like the lady who said, I wish I had never been made. And her wise pastor said, you have not been made. You are being made. And this is a part of the master's process. Every time I read this passage, I think of the pearl and the oyster. We all know that oysters do not produce pearls naturally. But somehow, sometime, a little intruder, maybe a grain of sand, finds its way into the shell and lodges into the lining. And all of a sudden, all of the forces of that oyster move toward the intruder, the invader, build a wall around it. And years later, the gymnologist opens up the oyster and voila, there is a pearl. Pain produces. Pain produces a prevailing faith. 
That's what this passage says when it talks about a faith. It's not like the waves that wash back and forth. It's a faith that endures and abides and remains, is permanent. It's like the tree that is blistered by the sun in the summer and, and frozen by the snows of the winter and slapped around by the wind and the storm and just keeps digging its roots deeper and, and becomes permanent and, and abiding and persistent and prevailing. That's the kind of faith we, we need. And I'm convinced that it is really not possible for anybody to have that kind of prevailing faith that never wavers, who has not experienced some kind of pain and trial. It was after Job had lost everything that he cried, I've heard of thee by the hearing of the ear, now mine eye seeth thee. I've heard about you, I read about you, now I know you personally. It was after all human confirmation had gone that God cared that Jesus cried, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. We need a faith that will never waver. But where is that faith produced? In the sunshine? Not primarily, because in the light, in the, in the brightness of the light, God's grace is often taken for granted. That faith is produced in the dark where God is not. I like what Ron Dunn says. People are always spouting a cliche, Jesus is enough. But you'll not know that Jesus is enough until Jesus is all you've got. And when Jesus is all you've got, then and only then will you know if Jesus is enough. And so he brings us into the crucible of pain and into the, into the crucible of, of suffering in order that we might discover the sufficiency of God. I am overwhelmed when I read the scripture and how unblinking are these men of God in their confidence in him. Heaven and earth may pass away, but the word of God abides forever. The mountains may be removed and the hills may be taken away, but my love for you will never be taken away. The sufficiency of God is found in the midst of pain. Prevailing faith is found there. Persistent prayer is found there. If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask. That word ask is in the continuous action tense of the verb. It means continual, going on and on, never ceasing. It's the picture of a person who discovers that what he gets in life, he gets on his knees. It's a value. He never stops praying. His attitude in life is that of persistent prayer. This persistent prayer is born in the midst of pain. Think of all of the power of the experience of men of prayer. It comes rushing from the scriptures. There is Moses with blood on his hands and tears on his face. And he's praying this prayer over and over again. Oh God, my people have sinned a great sin and have made idols, made gods of, of gold. I pray thee, forgive their sin, but if thou wilt not, I pray thee, blot me out of thy book. It was his finest hour when Moses stood before Pharaoh and announced let my people go it was a fine hour in his life and it was a wondrous moment when he took that rod and 
thrust it out toward the sea and the waters parted. And when he struck the rock in the wilderness and water came gushing out. But his finest hour was when this man stood between and offended God and an offensive people and prayed this prayer. And there's David with his guilt so great he thought his bones would break. His guilt of sin is so great he thought his fever was like the heat of the day. And he prays in that pain, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. It was his restoration. And there's Jesus with blood on his brow in the garden crying, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine. It was his victory over the cross. What a pity we pray so little. Prayer is our finest power. Here are the promises of prayer. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Ask, and it shall be given you. Whatsoever you ask in prayer, believing you shall receive. What a pity we pray so little. But are you not, as, as I, so beaten and badgered with the pressure of life that I don't have time to pray? And when we pray, how much of that is really praying? Most of it, I'm afraid, is just bringing our selfish request to God for His approval. Doesn't it make sense then that if anything drives you to persistent prayer, count it a joy, welcome it as a friend? Isn't it a blessing if there's something finally that causes you to cast yourself upon the wisdom of God? What a blessing is that? For in the midst of the pain of life, one finds prayer, persistent prayer. Third, the pain of life produces a perspective on things that are important. So he says, let the rich man rejoice when things are taken from him, when he has nothing left, because he discovers at that point in time what is really important in life. Most of us are materialistic, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God. Most of us spend our energy and our effort and our time on flowers that fade and wreaths that wither, on that food, bread, which is, does not satisfy. But in the midst of the difficulty of life, there is a discovery often made, and that's this, that the important things in life are not negotiable with money. In the midst of the pain of life, one discovers what is really important. Now, every species of bird encourages its little ones to fly, some more aggressively than others. I, I was reading not long ago about a species of birds, when it comes time for the little ones to start flying, the mother, by instinct and nature, will tear up the nest, destroy the nest, and force the bird out of the nest. Now, if we could talk bird or understand bird, we probably could hear a conversation going on somewhere up on a precipice somewhere as a mother bird begins to tear up the nest. And the little bird says, you know, what are you doing, mother? He says, well, I'm tearing up the nest. Why are you doing that? Well, I built it and I can take it down. Well, don't you love me? Of course I love you, but my love requires that you fly. And you'll never learn to fly sitting around in the nest and when that nest is dismantled, 
the mother bird kind of nudges her off the edge of the precipice and the little bird is plunging down to the rocks below, feels the wind under its wings, begins to flap them and fly a little bit, says to its mother, look, mom, I'm flying. And the mother says, of course you are. That's the purpose of the disappearing nest. Some of us put too much stock in the nest. We were not meant to put our roots down here. And we were not meant to put the focus of our life upon nests that are, that are not permanent. Some of you have read Rabbi Kushner's book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. He has a, a neuro book. It's not a new one really, but it's a neuro book entitled, When Everything You've Ever Wanted Is Not Enough. Kushner says, listen to me, the thing we fear about death is not death. The thing we fear about death is not that our life will end. What we fear about death is, is that when we die, it will be as though we did not exist, didn't matter. So James said, let the trials, let the fire be welcomed as a friend because in the midst of the trial one discovers that the thing that matters most are those things that are left that outlive us. And we get a new perspective on life. Finally, pain produces for us a perfected servanthood. Now that's the theme of James 1, is that something is being produced for a purpose, and the purpose of that thing that's being produced is that it might minister to somebody else. That's why he talks about when you have been approved, when you have been perfected, then you'll be able to help or minister to others. You experience the pain of life, and you're able to comfort others who are going through the same experience. In the little work, in the little piece called the stigmata, there are these words. He cannot heal who has not suffered much. For only sorrow, sorrow understands they will not come to the healing of our touch until they see the scars in our hands. I think I agree with William Faulkner's little line in Requiem for a Nun when he said, that the salvation of the world is in the suffering of man. It is true that the greatest ministry we ever perform is when we make available to the woundedness of others what we've learned in our own woundedness. It's like C.S. Lewis said, consider me as a fellow patient in the same hospital you're in, having been admitted a few hours earlier, I can just give you some advice. It is true that having experienced pain, the pain in life, with the scars in our hands, we're able to best minister to someone else. Now we've been praying for a young lady who is the granddaughter of one of our members. I asked this grandmother for permission to read this today. Uh, quite a traumatic experience just to hear these words. This little girl, um, when she first became a teenager, was bitten by a, um, a, a, a tick, 
She had Lyme disease and uh, has now suffered and endured um, the, the reaction of that disease. And she's been in um, homebound, unable to, to have light, unable to have the faintest sound. Her headaches are excruciating. She writes poetry. And she wrote a poem when she was 14 years old, a little piece of work. And I want to I read, start in the middle of this. And I want you to listen to the maturity of this, story, this, this work by a 14-year-old child. Listen. Intense and awful was my joint pain. No drugs, not even morphine, could restrain. Many tests did I undergo, EEGs, spinal tap, EKGs, and more needles and shots. Didn't even hurt anymore. My other pain was so great that those I totally ignored. When it seemed that my body was nearly spent, my pain just a little started to relent. We were able to go home after a time. I hoped to soon be rid of this terrible life. After a couple of months or so, I began to walk into church to go. After two years, I still have headache and joint pain that never goes away. I've had bad relapses and terrible days. Now, I don't know why all this has happened, but I know that God has everything planned. Maybe He wants me to learn compassion or patience or for others to have more concern. One day I'll know why, and someday I'll see. But all I know now is God is still working on me. And after that, nothing else needs to be said. Our Father, I pray that the pain that some of us goes through will produce in us a Christ-likeness that literally exudes the patience and the faith and the love of our Lord. And that our ministry might be a ministry that is relevant to human need. For I ask in Jesus' name for his sake. Now our invitation today, look, is for you to come to know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. He wastes nothing on anybody. So whatever has happened in your life, know it for this, that is for this reason. God is bringing you to a point in time where you can give your life and heart to Him. If you've never given your heart to Jesus, you've never trusted Him for your salvation, you'll, we want you to do that. You need to do that today. Or you may need to come this morning to recommit your life to Christ or to place your life in the fellowship of this church. Remember, listen, Whatever God has allowed to happen, He takes and works for good. The greatest good that could ever happen today 
is for you to find God to be sufficient. Find God to be the source of your life. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.